Well, let me just give, uh, in case you're jumping in, like you've missed the first two weeks, because we've had a little bit of snow and a little bit of weather, let me kind of walk through where we've been. So the first message, Parenting on Purpose, was talking about your most important parental decision. And, and I said that I think that decision is long before you have children. I think the decision is about whom you choose to marry and how you invest in your marriage. I think the quality of your marriage has a ton to do with what's going to happen with your kids and how parenting is going to go. So we, we even gave dating advice in that uh, message. So if you're single here today, you probably should go listen to that one. And then last week we talked about the disciplines of disciplining. And this is what most people think when they think we're going to learn about parenting. They think, oh good, we're going to learn how to train our, our children. And, and really the heartbeat, the thesis of this message was to discipline a child well, I have to be very disciplined. And so we talked about what the disciplines are of, of being a parent. Today, the message is called, Help, I Need Somebody. And this has a lot to do with the fact that parents need people to walk the journey with them, to be with them through it. None of us can do it alone. And the, and, and the question is, well, why? Well, we live in a world where there's so much information, so many classes you can take, so many textbooks, so many things you can Google, right, that you can learn a lot, but but when you're in the trenches, you're still by yourself. And we need people who are actually going to get... There's a huge difference between what you learn in the classroom and what you practice in the home and trying to do it when you're under the pressure of it. So the trenches are where life is really lived. And for that, we need, we need friends. We need mentors. We need help people to come alongside of us. Now, last week, I made the statement that parents who love their children raise their children. And it wasn't an anti-daycare uh, statement. It's a statement that, hey, if we have kids... We have to raise them. We have to train them. We have to invest in them. This is part of what being a parent is all about. I want to add a statement to that one based on that one, and it's really about church. Churches who love children support their parents, which is counterintuitive, isn't it? What would you think the statement would be? Churches who love children should what? Should invest in children, should have great children's programs, should have great youth ministry programs, should have the stellar nursery, and we have all that. But I'm telling you there's something even more important than that, which is investing back into the parents because we only see your kids an hour a week, two hours a week. You're with them under the pressure, under the gun. You are the ones who are actually raising them. So if we want to make a bigger dent, we have to invest in parents, which is part of why we teach this series. But it's, it's more than that. We need to change our culture, right? We must work to create a culture here at church that encourages, trains, supports, and connects parents, that encourages, trains, supports, and connects parents. And this is what today is going to be about. Right now, why? Why is this so important? And I've got two reasons I want to share with you. I think this is very, very high stakes. The first reason is that parenting puts everybody in over their heads. Everybody. It is a great equalizer. So, so when I had our, we had our first child, Lori and I, uh, Jeremy, my son, some of you don't know my kids because like, they're growing up and, and gone kind of thing, except for Molly who played drums, and so some of you know her. But when they handed me Jeremy, right, I can remember his face, I remember the feeling, I thought, this is unbelievable. It is, it is a moment where you feel like, oh my goodness, God, you're right in the room in a way I've never experienced you before. That was the first awestruck moment. The second thought was, I am so far over my head. I have no idea what to do with this, right? And two days later, they let us take the child home. 
There were no surveys or tests. We had to prove that we were driving a safe car. Other than that, take the child and go. And later on, they never asked, how are you doing? Nobody called me up from the hospital. Hey, we're just checking on you. They just, I was so far over my head, and Lori and I were trying to figure it all out together. And by the way, if that moment didn't put you over your head, if you didn't feel that so little bit, it didn't take long before you felt like you were over your head. You know, the, the kids will raise the bar, and you'll start to go, how do you deal with this? How do you handle every single meal being like this? And when they start eating that kind of food, you start to change those kinds of diapers, and it gets worse and worse, and your kid gets a little bit older, and they get sick. They get the earaches. They get the both-end flus. You have the same flu. They have at the same time. Everybody in the house is sick at one time, and you pray for death. This is what is so far over your head is all about and then they go to school and then the teachers start adding to the pain right that we talked about this last week the science fair and homework and all those projects and then they get a little older and now they're starting to to give their hearts to others and inevitably your, your child will experience the broken heart someone is going to stomp on their aorta and you're going to be there trying to figure out how do i help them through this first breakup without laughing at them it's so hard to to get through it and then your kids and you'll have different kinds of children some of your children will be so obsessive compulsive about their grades because they're thinking about their future and if they get a b plus instead of an a they're going to feel like death has come to their doorstep and they have no future at all i might as well quit now and other students are going to be struggling to get c's and 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 b's and you're going to be saying why aren't you living up to your potential because you're sure they're a straight a student in there somewhere no child is average right so this is the kind of life that we as parents live in and then Add to that that your child starts to experience emotions at a very deep level and can take them on a very huge roller coaster ride. And sometimes it is as scary as it gets, but you as a parent are always in over your head trying to figure out how do I help them through this? And you're afraid they're not going to get through it. And it all started here. Actually, it didn't all start there, but you know your biology. So that's where, <laughs> that's where we end up and where we feel as parents always we feel to a point where we are just in such deep water that we're not sure how we're going to make it and it doesn't have to be active parenting it's just putting yourself in that position so when Lori and i decided first of all we got married at age 22 and we decided we wanted to be a couple before we became a group so we waited till about age 26 before we start thinking about having children and so then one day we started about thinking about having children. Now, those of you who don't understand this, you can't just think about having children. You have to proactively do something to have children, and you have to stop doing some things you were doing not to have children. So we, we said, okay, we're going to put in position for parenthood. We didn't know how long it would take. Well, the month that we tried to say, okay, now we're good with it, we got pregnant. That was easy, and we're a very advanced couple, is what I thought. And so we're, nine months later, our son Jeremy was born, and it, he was perfect. You know, and it was awesome. And we thought, this went so well that we should do it again, right? And so we, we waited a level of time because we wanted two to three years between our children. And so we waited the time, time that out. And we thought, well, you know what? It's June. Let's do this. And, and nothing happened and nothing happened. And finally, Lori got pregnant. And then the first trimester, she, she had her first miscarriage. And she had two more after that. Right now, when we had that first miscarriage, we'd never experienced anything like that before. This was in over our heads. We thought it was so easy. And then it didn't turn out to be so easy. Right? That first miscarriage, your emotions are there. This is, all, this is, this is death. 
This is loss. This is a child. To us, it wasn't losing a pregnancy. For us, it was losing a, a child. And we went to church. And by the way, the church we went to was probably maybe not as many people in this whole room, right? So that was, so we, you know, we have three services like this. We had one service kind of like this. And it was mostly older people in, in the room. And I remember we were just real honest. We just said, yeah, you know what? This week we, we lost a pregnancy. We lost a baby. And we're really hurting. And it was crickets. It was crickets for weeks. Nobody said anything. And then over time, and, and I was thinking, wow, we're the only people to go through. This is so rare. Over time, little old ladies would come up to Lori privately, not with me or anything, and they just say, Lori, I went through that too. Another one, Lori, we went through that too. It was so hard. It was so dark. No one was there for me. And Lori would report this to me, and probably about six to eight people did that with her. And with every single person, I got more angry and more angry. You know why? What's the big secret? Why are we sharing this? Why are we going through our pain alone? Why are, why are, where's the support? Where's the care? Where's the love? But if you're not living openly and transparently, and you're not willing to say what the truth is out loud and share each other's burdens, how are we calling ourselves a church? Right, so it's a big deal. Now, I understand you can't talk about miscarriages every week, and I understand that if, if a woman, and some of you, by the way, in this room, I guarantee you, many of you have had miscarriages. You've gone through that pain, but you've gone through it alone, and I don't want that to be the case. But that is a parental moment of being over your head at the loss of a child. Right? And, and by the way, both of my children have found ways to make me feel way over my head many, many times. It's almost like their job description. How to make dad feel inadequate is what, how I view children, right? But this is number one. Reason number one, parenting puts everyone over in their heads eventually. I don't care if you're a parenting expert. You're going to be in over your head because you can't be an expert enough for this. Reason number two, parenting culture has become toxic. To be a parent is to join a toxic club. You parents are so hard on each other, and you're not the first to do it. My generation, parents were very, very hard on each other. I read this by a Chicago psychologist. John Duffy said, every family I work with worries about being judged. Think about that for a moment. You have a child, and it's a moment of joy, and then you spend their entire childhood as a parent worried about what other people are thinking. Word that other people are judging you for whatever you do. And this is, this is a very real thing. I know last night some young families came to me and go, that is exactly where we live. We don't say anything about how we parent our child because if we say it out loud, we're going to get judged for it. Now, I read some blogs. I came across one called a daddy blog. It is a typed out written daddy blog. I took it and the heart of it and I gave it to our video team and I said, hey, if you guys can make a video that would reflect the heart of this, um, that would be great to show at church. So they made a video. It is the actual blog. I did clean up the language a little bit, but listen for the toxicity of what this man is experiencing as a father. Sam is a huge baby. He's three and a half months old and creeping up on the 20-pound mark. With the exception of a couple of bottles of formula, my wife has been exclusively breastfeeding him the entire time. The only problem is it hasn't been enough lately because her supply isn't keeping up with his overwhelming demands. At the same time, Sam is displaying a lot of signs he wants to eat. 
He's reaching for our food at dinner, opening his mouth and chewing when food is close to him, and drooling up a storm when we eat in his vicinity. So we decided to mix a little rice cereal in with his breast milk and spoon feed it to him. And he loved it. Seriously, he ravenously devoured it. He didn't spit up or have an ounce of trouble with the spoon. It was a completely seamless transition. And with Sam finally feeling full, he's sleeping better to boot. It sounds pretty positive and great, right? Yet the first thing my wife said to me was, Don't put the rice cereal thing on Facebook. Everyone will get on their soapboxes and talk about how bad it is for him, and I don't want to deal with that. I've since secured her permission for this post. And she's absolutely right. Because, unfortunately, too many parents are judgmental. Now, we know the AAP recommends breast milk only until at least six months. We're not idiots, and we do a lot of research. But Sam is gargantuan, and he wasn't getting enough breast milk, even in the bottle. So we're supplementing once a day with some rice cereal. It's not massacring his digestive system, and we're not poisoning him, as the La Leche zealots would have people believe. We're doing what's right for our baby. Yet, there are some holier-than-thou parents who simply cannot wait to jump on their soapboxes and happily tell you all of the things you're doing wrong. Wow, seems really early for rice cereal. We plan on breastfeeding exclusively for the first year and then introducing homemade all-organic wheatgrass tofu that's been blessed by the Dalai Lama. Because, you know, we care about the health of our child. It doesn't matter whether it's breastfeeding versus formula, rear-facing versus front-facing, circumcision or intact, spanking or no spanking, or attachment parenting versus cry it out. It is always the same, always unnecessary, and perpetually obnoxious. Parenting is hard, and no one gives you a manual. And if there was a manual, it'd be no good because every kid is different. So can we all do each other a favor and just relax with the judgment and the condescension about these topics? You are free to raise your kids however you like within the confines of the law. And I urge you to do so. We all come from different backgrounds with a variety of beliefs and manners of upbringing. That's a good thing. And most parents are already insecure and constantly worrying that we're not doing a good enough job. They don't need to have that feeling amped up to 11 by fellow parents on soapboxes. So unless you're asked specifically for your two cents, I would urge you to respect other people making perfectly valid and informed choices by shutting up. You can still think you're right, and you can cloak yourself in the warm self-satisfaction of always knowing what's best for everyone. It to yourself. All right, so that's reason number two. Parenting culture has become toxic. I'm always tempted at this point to go, hey, raise your hand if you were breastfed or if you were bottle fed, right? One of the two. Because I can't tell which one of you were raised which way. And that's one of my little barometers of when, when I'm thinking about parenting is just like, can you pick out the adults who were spanked versus the ones who weren't? Can you pick out the ones who were circumcised and uncircumcised? I don't want to know. Let's move on. All right. <laughs> so the question is why? Why, is, why are parents so hard on each other? And by the way, I know it's not just parents. It's, it's grandparents. It's the mother-in-law. It's the father-in-law. It's all those kinds of people as well. Let me ask you a different question. Why do you think teenagers are known for being so mean to each other? Why does the, the movie Mean Girls take place in what level of, edu- of, of age? High school, right? I never saw the movie, so I'm really asking, right? High school, right? 
Why are teenagers known for being mean to each other? And, and we know the answer, those of us who are older. When we, in it, when we were in it, we didn't know, but now we know that it's about insecurity. Adolescent insecurity. Why are adolescents insecure? Well, they've gone through tremendous physical change. They're catching up with that. They're insecure about their bodies. They've gone through incredible social change. It's easier being in an elementary school where you're all the same, all peers. You're not thinking about your peer relationships nearly as much. Your primary source for security is your parents. But when you get to middle school and high school, that starts to change, and you become about your friends. And that's where your identity comes from. And then there's this pressure to measure up because you know there's a lot in the line coming just a few years. Your parents remind you all the time. You're getting ready for college. Now your grades matter. And one guy has shot up six inches and you're still short. One woman, girl looks mature and you're still waiting for maturity. And so there's this pressure to measure up that's taking place all the time. And every adolescent has this thing uh, that they think they are on a stage and everybody is watching them. Hopefully you grow out of that. Some of us don't, right? But it's just insecurity. When we're insecure, we become harder on other people because in middle school, we learn to put people down as a way of lifting ourselves up. I think it's the same thing with parents. We're all insecure. We've gone through incredible physical change. It's a, it's a social change as well. We've gone from two to three, to four, to five. It's, it's huge social change. You had to give up your friends. When you have that baby, it's so awesome, it's so wonderful, but from now on, you go to bed at 7.30. You can't have friendships if you're going to bed at 7.30 at night, every night. It's very difficult to keep up. And then there's this pressure to measure up. Well, my child is walking. My child is talking. My child just wrote their first novel. They're only three years old. What is, what's wrong with your kid? And are you doing it right? And all those questions. And then add to that the medical community. You need to bring your baby in. We need to measure them and make sure that they're big enough and you're feeding them well and they're thriving. And you're going, what percentile are they? There was a day when none of us cared because we didn't know what a percentile was. But you do. Right? So there's this, this parental toxicity that comes because we're just insecure about being a parent and about how we're doing and how we're raising our kids. And it creates a, cult, a toxic culture. Now, part of the comeback to help parents has been a philosophy that came out of Africa. And it's a um, kind of an African proverb. At least it claims to be. And here's the statement. It takes a village to raise a child. And I know there was a book about that, but we're not talking about, about the book, a book by that title. There's actually two books by that title. Um, but that's not really the point today. I will tell you this. It's, it's credit to an African proverb, but they can't find the proverb anywhere in Africa. They find things that are similar, but someone modified it, and this is what it came out to. It takes a village to raise a child. And I think what they're trying to say is that there are some advantages to growing up in a village. And they're not hard to figure out. The first one is this. You're in a village, you're known and loved. Why? Because we know everybody in a village. If we formed a village with all of us and we lived for the next 20 years together in a little village and huts in a warmer climate, right, we, we would know each other. We would love each other or hate each other. We'd figure it out, but we'd have relationships. But when you're a kid growing up in that environment, it's like growing up with a big, huge, extended family and you're known and, and you're loved and there's multi-generational support, right? Because there's old people and young people and there's peers of your parents and there's other kids that you're hanging out with and so you get, you get as a parent, you get your great-grandma and your grandma and your mom and you've got sisters and brothers and they're all having kids and you, you get to kind of work together and learn from each other and so wisdom is shared easily 
Because it's hard to hear advice from people who you don't think love you and have your best interest. It's hard to hear advice from people you think are judging you. Right? But in this culture, it's maybe just a little bit warmer, a little easier to get to get wisdom. And then you have the support of your peers because when you're in a village, you're all in it together. And you're trying to make sure that that how are our next generation of kids growing up, and so you're invested together. Now, there is a problem with the village. Can you anticipate it? What is it? It is that we don't live in villages. We live in American culture, and it is not a village anymore. And in our culture, it's completely different. We lack accountability, and we lack support. Accountability always sounds like a harsh thing. It's not. It's a, it's a form of support. It's You need help. We know you need help. Let us help you, and let us be supportive to you. We don't have that because I was sent home with a baby that I didn't know how to operate, right? I didn't know how to repair. I didn't know how to take care of. We needed some people to speak into our lives. We were in over our heads right away. There was no accountability. There was no phone call. Hey, Doug, we're just making sure you guys are okay. We're the hospital. We're the ones who gave you that baby. No, it's not okay. Come fix this. Take this away. No, we didn't have that point, but that's kind of how they don't check. There's no accountability. We live in an age where information is easy and wisdom is difficult. Right? Information, what do you do if you don't know something? You take out your phone and you go to google or siri and you say hey what is the meaning of life and it has no answer but if you want to know any data it can tell you and if you want to tell you what's the best way to change a baby diaper it'll show you a video it has all of that kind of information but it has very little wisdom so it's hard to navigate because people give wisdom better than computers do. And then the last thing we have is we're isolated in a crowd. And this is partly because of our culture. We are American individuals. And we don't want people telling us how to do anything. And so we take our baby home. We close the door. And besides, it's even worse in Minnesota. You have to close the door. You have to kind of... Some of you, you have your babies, and we don't see you for six months. Right? Especially if it's the first baby. And this, it's just because you don't want that virus getting to your child that those people at church have. And I understand these are a bunch of sick people around here, and I wouldn't do it either. But we end up living that way completely. And we live, have you ever been alone in a crowd? It's the worst kind of loneliness. People are everywhere, but you don't feel like you're connected. You don't feel like you have relationships. And we do that as families, not just as, as individuals. All of that leads to some really harsh parental feelings. Parents feel often inadequate, often judged often unsupported, they have nobody to turn to, and they are alone. And we can blame them, but this is the culture that we live in, and this is the common experience, and it is the unfortunate new normal for parenting. Because we don't live in villages anymore. And what I want to say today, the heartbeat of this message, is just one thing. We can do better. And when I say we, I can't change Rochester, but we can change Crosswinds. Crosswinds, this church can do better by parents. And not only that, but we're supposed to do better. We're supposed to be a place for parents to thrive, for families to thrive. Let me take you to Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I've got to give you a warning. This is Paul writing to families in the first century. It's really important that you understand this is first century family, or you're going to walk out being offended because you're going to say, well, that doesn't fit me. I'm very offended by those things. 
and I'll explain to you a little bit what, what culture I'm talking about, what he's trying to do, and this is what the big thing he's trying to do, is to say, hey, Titus, as Titus, who's a leader in, on Crete, an island in the Mediterranean, he says, what I, you need to do is you need to train your church, create a culture for families. And here's how he explains it. He says, as for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. He's looking for a wholesome place for families to be. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. That's a great list. So how many of you go, I'm an older man? Raise your hand if you think you're an older man. (laughs) How many of you are in denial? Wives, raise their hands. (laughs) Okay. So if older men, we are supposed to exercise self-control, be worthy of respect, and, and live wisely. Young women, you want to marry a man someday that is going to be an old man who is self-controlled, worthy of respect, and live wisely. Doesn't that sound like a good person to be married to? It goes on. Old men, older men, not old men, but older men, they must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Let me just say that a different way because I think we translate it poorly. They must have sound faith means not that they must believe all the right things, but they must live in sound faith their faith must affect how they live it out not just what they believe but that they live it out and they must be filled to overflowing not just have it inside of them but it comes out everywhere love and patience for for others right isn't that the first thing you think of with the old men right they're just filled with love and patience isn't that kind of how how old men are right and the bible says no this is how we're supposed to to be now we're going to go to women and, and let me talk to the young, it's going to say young women in here, and I want you to hear something very clearly. Young women in the Bible means either freshly married or not quite married yet. And it means they're teenagers, right? So you have to put that into your brain as you hear this. Similarly, similarly means like the men, because everything that was true for the men should be true for the women, and everything that's going to be true for the women should be true and applicable to the men. Similarly, or likewise, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. What would that be? Overflowing in patience and love and wisdom and those good things. The same thing as it was for the men. In a way that honored God. They must not slander others. Men shouldn't do that either. Or be heavy drinkers. I love the Greek because it actually says enslaved to much wine. In other words, can, can you have a drink? If you're an alcoholic, the answer is no. That's stupid. Don't do that. Right? But if you're not an alcoholic, sure, you can have a drink. But if you find yourself being enslaved, owned by the product, then stop. Get help do those kinds of things. And I'll be very, very proud of you for getting that kind of help. So they must not be slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. That Others means everybody. These older women must train the younger women, right? Now we're talking about people who've just left childhood pretty much, teenagers. Younger women to love their husbands because they get married very young and their children because they have children very young. In other words, they're in over their heads, Right? As, as, as other young men and their husbands, and everybody's over their heads. To live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good and be submissive. And this is mutual submission. Go back to the very first message if this word is bothering you, because we talked about what submission means. Mutual submission, husbands to wives, families together. Be submissive to their husbands. It really means love them deeply in a servant hearted way. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. They won't embarrass God. People will look at them and their families. And they'll say, give God honor for that. Look how that family functions. In the same way, encourage, not for the young men, just one sentence. (laughs) In the same way, encourage young men to live wisely. Because that's about the most we can challenge them with. 
That's a, you know, young men, if you, if you could just be a little wiser, that would be enough for us. Okay, <laughs> okay? So, so that's the advice. And what Paul's trying to do, and this is the big picture, the, the specifics don't matter so much as he's saying, hey, church, let's function in a way that everybody grows, everybody learns, everybody is supported, and the old people aren't keeping it themselves. They're reinvesting in, in the younger people. And the younger people are learning from the older people, and, and we're honoring God together. Paul is giving a vision for how the church is to care for families. I don't think the specifics matter as much as the goal, right? Because we can get offended by words, but we're not going to be offended by the mission or the vision. I think one of the things Paul is saying, hey, you know what the church should look like? The church should look like this, where there's older people, and there's younger people, and there's people in, in the middle. And as I look around crosswinds, right, I see that. If you go, hey, I'm an older person, raise your hands, be proud of it. Just own it. I'm an older person, okay? Good, good for you. Way to go. You lived another day. Um, I'm in the... <laughs> no, you made it. That's good. How many of you go, I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle somewhere. I think I'm in the middle, right? I saw some people raising their hands for both. That's just a little bit of denial, all right? <laughs> How many of you go, I'm young, I'm young, how many go, I'm a kid, I'm a kid, I'm a, I'm a I'm, man, I'm just a kid. Okay, good, I'm not just a kid, but I'm a kid, right? That's what the church should look like. I'm going to tell you a little insider secret across ones. There was a little movement among our ranks, and, and we've, I kind of stomped on it, but it was for the band to become younger, for the band, the people in the band to become all young people, and then we would age you out, right? So once you hit, I don't know, what's old, 30? Once you got to, obviously not young, we'd have to say, you know, we appreciate the fact that you're really a good guitar player, that you've served here for 25, 30 years, but we need to let somebody younger and not nearly as good as you play on the stage, right? And, and I'm, I'm going, what are you talking about? And that actually got to be a little bit of a rumor in the band. So the older people the band are feeling a little insecure, like they're going to kick me off kind of moment. And I just said, no, 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 no. You know what my dream of the band is being? I want people in the band and vocalists that you people are going, are they really old enough to do this? Right? They're so young. But then I want their pipes to go, oh no, I can do this. God has given me this gift. And then I want some people in the middle and then I want some people that are older and you're going, wow, they let old people up there. That old guy has a passion for worship and to play the drums or to play the guitar and it's awesome, and he's got the gifts. Now, when you get old enough that you're not hitting the right notes or able to play anymore, then we will say, you know, there's too much at stake, and we're going to tell you the truth. By the way, someone needs to do that to me someday. Someone needs to go, hey, Doug, you're done. It was a nice race, nice run, but you were interim. You knew that when you started 21 years ago, that you'd only be here for a little while. Right? And you need to move over and let the next person... This is, this is life. This is the way it's supposed to go. But the band itself, I want it to be a reflection of what I think the church should look like. I want, I want older people. I want, there's churches that target nothing but young because they just say the young people are leaving the church so we've got to start a church for them. Baloney. The church isn't for them if there's not older people to give wisdom. Well, wait, older people, you shouldn't be smiling right now. You should go, whoa, that's a lot of weight to carry. I got to be wise. Why don't we give another picture of what I think the church should look like? I think it should look like this. Different people, different colors, different backgrounds, all looking to Jesus, all, by the way, they're touching in an appropriate way. They're touching each other. Their lives are touching. They're, they're growing together. 
They're connected. This is what the church is supposed to It's not supposed to be a service. You come and you hear some stuff and you, and, and you go home and you check it off your list. It's supposed to be something more than that. Yet, villages have advantages. Known and, and loved, multi-generational support, easily shared wisdom, support of peers. We don't have villages anymore. And the church has the exact same advantages if we aim for it, target it, and lean into it. And this is what I want us to do. So for the rest of this message, just a few more minutes, I'm going to talk to different groups of you and the church in large, and I'm going to say, how are we going to get there to be that church? So let me talk to crosswinds across the board for a moment, especially leaders. We have a responsibility as an organization, if we're going to be a church for parents and families, to provide solid children and youth programming. And we're working at that. And we're asking the question, how do we raise the bar? How do we get better at this? More is not always better, by the way. Right? Just another thing to go to. Another, it's not always better. Let's do whatever we do. Let's do, let's do it in a quality way, which means we can't do mass quantity. So we want to do it in a quality way. We want to do some parental equipping. That's why we're doing this teaching series. It's also why there's going to be seminars down the road, not too far down the road, to do an ongoing investment in parents where we talk about parenting issues and then we should be programming some events for the whole family it shouldn't be all men and women this and men that women that we need to get some more things for the whole family for families to know families and and rub together now i'm going to tell you the most important family supportive program we have it's called small groups right and so if you're a parent i just want to encourage you you need to be in a small group. Now, you need to think carefully about what small group. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm telling you, small groups are where you're going to get your best support as a family, as, as parents. So let me talk to parents directly then. What do we do if you're a parent? What do I want you to do? What am I challenging you to do? Well, the first thing is I want you to trade competing in for caring. Think about how you relate to other parents, and I want you to put down the competing piece, and I want you to pick up the caring piece. Why do I say that? Because this is what the Bible says to do. 1 Peter 3, 8 says, Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. And I know that was written for the whole church, but it applies specifically today to parents. Wouldn't it be awesome as a parent, those of you who are parents, wouldn't it be awesome if that's what you thought you were walking into? Relationships where we were on the same page, where people were tender-hearted, where they were respectful of each other's parenting styles and supportive to each other. So I want to trade away the competing for caring. I want you to rearrange your life. This is what it takes. You've got to rearrange your life. Otherwise, you can't take advantage of being in a small group. Being in a small group will force you to rearrange your life. And by the way, you need to figure out which kind of small group, and I'm still going to get there in just a moment. Right, But to, to bring your kids to programs, to put your kids into Sunday school, when they get to the youth group, you go, no, you are going to youth group. I'm driving you there. You're going on that retreat. I'm going to go help support it. And whatever it takes, we need to rearrange our lives to make it happen. If we're only doing it once in a while, it's real hard to keep the programs going. And it's real hard for your kid to feel welcome and connected and, and loved there. And the last one is, and this is we're going to get to which kind of small group, you need to connect to the big three. Now, what are the big three? You need, you need some people in your lives who are walking alongside of you. They're your peers. So this is when a, child, a family has a new baby and they meet another person carrying a new baby and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. You got a baby. Yeah, we, we do too. We should be family. Let's hug. 
what, you know, whatever it is, if you're connecting, we should get together. We should talk. People who are like you, the same stage of life as you, you need some of those people in your life. Ignorance needs more ignorance, right? This is, put it, think about that. Put it together. Because you're all learning together. You're growing together. You'll support each other. You can form a babysitting co-op. It's awesome. Right? And those things should be happening. You need people alongside of you. You need some people in your life who are ahead of you. Right? You go, look at those people. They don't even have any children. They used to have children. They're gone. That means they're successful. And I need to connect with them. Because I want my children to leave too someday. How did you do that? How did this work? And you learn from people with more, that's tongue-in-cheek, by the way. You're learning more from them about what they did to grow together. There's people who are your mentors. You don't have to say, would you be my mentor? Just suck up to them. Get to know them. Invite them over. Start listening to them. Engage in conversations with them. Right? And the third one is you need some people behind you. Why? Because you should care for those other people. So if you're a ch- family with, with children, you should, if you just got married, you should care about some people who are sig- single. You should form relationships with them and care for them. It's real tempting to go to just the married world. right? If you've got kids, you should care about couples who don't have kids yet. You should have relationships with them. Now, not exclusively, because I want you to have the other ones in, in your life, those other categories, but we've got to look behind, reach out, hold on to, and support them through it. For all you know, they just had a miscarriage. That's why they don't have any kids. right? We go to all these assumptions. You don't know they haven't been trying to have kids for years. You don't know the words, unless you've talked to them, you don't know whether it's a choice or a problem for them. But, but we got to look behind, and people raising younger families than we are need the support of older families, more mature families. Now, here's, here's the question about small groups. It is tempting to think what I want is a small group with people alongside me. Because I'll be comfortable, they're about my age, they're going through the same challenges I am. That's awesome and great. But maybe that's not what you should do. Maybe what you should do is say, you know what, we feel so lost, wouldn't it be great? We're going we're gonna to find a small group that's full of grandparent age people. And we're going to get into that group, and then we're going to listen very carefully and decide which ones we trust and which ones we don't, and we will have babysitters forever <laughs> for our children. And they don't need money, so it'll be free. This will be great. And those people care enough to say, yeah, of course we're going to invest. Of course we want you. I, I talked to a couple who that's what, their church was just full of older people. And they said, we benefited so much from not hanging out with all our peers all the time. But people who were ahead of us. right? And then we need some people behind. And maybe, maybe you're in a place where you, I need to be in a small group with people with young children. young fam- My kids are old up. Older now, I learned a lot. I can be supportive. I can help. I'm, all I'm saying is think through this as you choose your small group and choose it carefully. And then go to Jeff, and it's his problem and your problem to figure out which group you're going to be in. And I do know there's more groups starting, a family group, so I want to encourage you to think about that now. And over the next year, we'll figure it out together. Right? So, so parents, connect and care. Rearrange your life. Put down the competing thing and start the caring thing. And connect the big three. Let me go to one last group, and it's my group. It's empty nesters. So all I want to say to the empty nesters is, way to go, we're done. That's it? Let's pray. No. (laughs) We're actually maybe in the hardest position. Because what we want to do is go, done. And what God says is, no, I need you to invest and adopt other people. 
adopt other people's children as your grandchildren. We live in such a mobile culture right now that there's so many families that grandparents are either too busy doing their own thing to care about grandchildren, they have too many grandchildren, whatever it is, or they live so far away that in their transplants that they're living without grandparents in their lives and they're desperate, not just for babysitters, although that's a real thing, they're desperate for people to invest in their kids. Right? Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Empty nesters, I'm about to motivate you, I hope, to acts of love and good works. So we need to invest and adopt. We're going to have to rearrange our lives. It will be inconvenient. Let me ask you a quick question. Old people, old people, what kind of old are we becoming? There's some options for what kind of old we're becoming. Right? There's the get off my lawn old. Very, very real, right? There's the, I don't want to be bothered with other people. I just want to sit and watch my television and all the sports and all the movies and whatever it is. There's there's another game somewhere. There must be another tournament somewhere. I can just sit here and watch and veg out. This is what I worked for, so I can do this, right? There's a whole bunch of people I know like that. You know what? This is our stage of life. This is our golden years, so we're going to spend our gold, and we're going to go on vacations, and we're not going to invest, and they're, they're always gone on the next cruise. I know this from experience. This is not far from me. By the way, I love this picture, because nobody does what she's doing. <laughs> nobody sits in the water in a dress. I promise you, after the picture was taken up, she goes, that is so gross. I can't believe I said, but it looks romantic, doesn't it? What kind of old are we becoming? Are we just going to disappear and go do our own thing and we paid our time? And, and I'm not saying never go somewhere warm. And by the way, I know I'm also not preaching to the right people because the right people are on vacation somewhere in a much warmer place. <laughs> We're still here. What kind of old are we becoming? Are we going to invest in families? We can do things in our stage of life and, and older than me, you know, especially if you're retired. We have time to do things we still have energy. If you've got enough energy to go on a cruise, you've got enough energy to take a kid fishing. You've got enough energy to go to a ski hole and watch them ski. If you can't ski, that's fine. But you're going to get them there and you're going to take them back and just, just for the time in the car together. right? And I hope it's not just your kids. I hope it's other people's children. By the way, there's, there's something about a non-judgmental hug from an older person that they'll never get from their parents because their parents are too insecure to give them non-judgmental hugs. They're like... I love you, but you need to do better at school. I love you, but you're not tall enough. I love you, but you're overeating. Whatever it is, there's, you can't help it. They're parents. They're raising their kids. But grandparents are like, I love you. And that age people, we don't do other people's children. I love you, and I just love you. And kids know it. They're drawn to it. But it takes, takes some energy. I have just a few kids. I've not been as intentional as I want to be about this, but when I'm out, in the, in the hallway, there's kids who are extroverted and they see me teaching and stuff and so they go, that's Doug or Pastor Mathers or whatever the words they want to use and there's, there's a couple of them want to give me these weekly hugs and there's, there's one, I don't know how to describe this to you, she, from the time she was born, is all muscle she's not a dense child but she's high density child if that makes sense, and so when, so when you lift her up, it's like this she weighs much more than you would guess Right? She's not fat. She's just muscle. She comes up, boom, 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 hugs me every week, right? And I pick her up, and I've been doing this for years now. And so I told her, you have to jump. I can't lift you up anymore. You have to jump. So she jumps into my arms. I hold her up here, and every single week I whisper in her ear, and I just say, this is going to be so embarrassing on your wedding day. (laughs) 
and she giggles and laughs, and I put her down. I hope that doesn't end. I mean, I hope she, there's an age where she shouldn't jump on me like that, but (laughs) I'm thinking of my age, not hers. Um, (laughs) But there should be more of that. And it's not going to happen by accident. It's going to happen with intention and reaching out and caring and getting to know names. And I don't do enough in children's ministry to be able to be that guy who knows everybody's kids. I struggle with just knowing everybody's names. But we got to be that church. And I can't, it's not about me, it's about us. And if you're on the older side, what kind of old are we becoming? By the way, when did it become illegal for old people to say, hey, I'm hosting a dinner, and I'm going to invite some young families to come join us, and we're going to let them destroy our home. It's okay. And we're going we're gonna to have a fire out in the yard, and we're going to invite young, young families and some other families, a mix of people, a reflection of the church, and we're going to cook marshmallows and chocolate and hot dogs and they're going to run around the yard and they're going to trip and fall and they're going to be on the grass because we're raising kids, not grass. Right? And so when did that become illegal? When did, but it will require us to rearrange our lives. And then we're going to talk about this next week. Older people, we get to share wisdom carefully. Those opportunities come, but we're going to talk. I don't want to go, just don't do it this week. Wait for next week, because we're going to talk about how that needs to happen. We don't live in a village. It's better. We're the church. We are the church. But we need to be the church. What was the name of this message? Do you remember? Help, I need somebody. That's a song. I think you know that. What's the next line of the song? Exactly. We need us. We need the church, and we need to be the church. Let's pray. God, this is such a big thing. We're not done talking about it. But we need to dig in again, and we need to rearrange our lives, all of us. And we need to grasp the vision that you have for us and the wisdom you have for us. And some of us are just barely hanging on right now because we're so far over our heads. With one hand, we hold on to the other, our child, and with the other hand, we reach up to you and we reach out to others. God, make us that church where families are supported, where parents feel loved and accepted, whether they homeschool or private school or send their kids to public school. We all want to do what's best. Help us not to be judging others about stuff like that. And God, help those of us who are old, older, to invest, to adopt, and love. We want to be your church the way you dream of the church being. In Christ's name, amen. All right, see you next week.